Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Saturday, January 23rd, we are uh, at the end of the second week in ordinary time, the second week after Epiphany, and uh, right on the verge of Septuagesima, <laughs> this great Sunday that marks 70 days before the Feast of Easter, and so about three weeks before the coming of Lent. And, uh, well, I don't need to tell you how uh, this season just can really sneak up on us. <laughs> Lent can just be right around the corner after the celebrations of Christmas have just finished. And uh, for me personally, I don't feel ready for it. <laughs> but that's why the church gives us these next few Sundays in the traditional calendar. Septuagesima, sexagesima, quinquagesima. Just to keep it on our minds each week. Hey, Lent is coming. Lent is coming. So to prepare ourselves spiritually for the coming fast and always looking ahead towards the feast, which now glimmers like a distant star of Easter, but to which we'll draw nearer and nearer as we journey through the desert, ultimately coming again at last to this great solemnity. And uh, we pray, of course, that this year, well, I think it's safe to say with confident expectation that Easter this year will look different than it did last year. In our parishes, we will be able to come together and celebrate the sacred liturgy uh, with all due reverence and glory that are liturgies of Holy Week. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to accommodate all those who wish to come in a way that's safe, uh, but also uh, spiritually nourishing and giving good worship to God. I hope you all are doing well. Uh, I've had a great week uh, this past week. It's been a, um, how shall I say? Well, it's been, it's been quite a full week and it's been a week uh, of a lot of forward looking. <laughs> a lot of planning, a lot of uh, preparation and trying to, um, yeah, just establish a vision of what these coming months are going to look like. The second half, really, of my pastoral year here at St. Mary's in Eugene. I received some direction from my vocation director this week, um, which was a surprise, but in a good way. And I can, I believe, share it with you now that he's announced it. Um, so for myself and the other seminarians who are on pastoral year this year, you know, normally the pastoral year lasts for nine months. We, so I arrived here August 1st. Theoretically, it would end May 1st. But uh, Father Jeff has, has told us now that we should plan to remain in our parishes through the summer. Just remain stable here until we go back to our seminaries next August. So in fact, I'll, I'll be here for a full year, not just nine months, 12 months really. Um, and that's a great gift. Of course, I love it here at St. Mary's. I'm having the time of my life. And uh, it's, it's good for a number of reasons. It's good because there are some projects that I'm working on in the parish that having three extra months uh, will make a big difference for. And it's good because it means I won't have to pack up and move somewhere else just for two or three months, <laughs> which I wasn't looking forward to particularly. Um, so that's great. It means a little bit more stability in that regard. That's just a gift for me. I like to be stable in a place. Uh, in fact, this, uh, this will be the longest I've been in one place since I entered seminary, I think. 
uh, it's rare to uh, to just stay in one place for longer than nine months at the very most. And of course, we have our summer parish assignments where we're just there for two or three months. And yeah, so th- this is uh, it's really it's really good. It's great news. I think I've mentioned before that typically in the past, uh, this summer after pastoral year. The the time this time in our formation would be spent on hospital chaplaincy training, and the diocese has always sent seminarians to a program called CPE clinical pastoral education, which they have at various hospitals all around the country, and so um, the seminarians would have to kind of shop around for a good program, apply to it. It could be anywhere in the U.S. or I guess maybe even abroad. I don't know if we ever sent people elsewhere, but. I know it's throughout the U.S. anyway. So you find a program you like, apply to it, and then you would go there for the summer after pastoral year, and you kind of just work in the hospital. It's an intensive training for about two months. You work, you work there. You're on, you're on call, um, and uh, yeah, you receive your chaplaincy training, kind of a trial by fire. (laughs) There are some flaws with that program, and I know the diocese has been trying to move away from it. And so this year, uh, Father Jeff also announced to us that we will not be doing the CPE program. Instead, the diocese is just giving us some, some, uh, some tasks, some expectations for us to complete during our pastoral year. And the extra three months in the parish will help with that as well. So during our time in the parish, um, the diocese... This year, the second half of the pastoral year, would like for us to uh, get involved with the local hospital, the local chaplain. So here in Eugene, we have Sacred Heart Riverbend Hospital, Catholic Hospital. they got a full-time chaplain, Father Joseph, who I've connected with but have not really worked with. So part of the expectations for me in the second half of the year will be to connect with him and his team there. And then uh, once I kind of get acquainted with their system... Uh, to get it on my schedule once a week to go over and visit the hospital and make the rounds visiting patients there. Typically, uh, this was my experience at another assignment, Coos Bay, where I was at the hospital in North Bend on the Oregon coast. Uh, I would go over there once a week and they would have a chaplain's list ready for me of Catholic patients, you know, or any patient who indicated they wanted to receive a visit from a Catholic chaplain. And so they'd have a list, and I would just make the rounds, visit everyone on the list, and some would want to receive Holy Communion, and so I would bring the Blessed Sacrament with me. Some would just want to pray or just talk. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's uh, sort of what the diocese is expecting, is just to uh, pick a day of the week, go once a week, make the rounds, visit the people. And then in addition, um, there's always got to be some, you know, some reflection and some written... Uh, some written work too. So they want us once a month to write what's called a verbatim, where basically it's a written reflection on an encounter you had with a patient or someone in a clinical setting. And uh, so you you write, so the verbatim part is you write from memory um, something like 15 or 20 lines of conversation you had with them. And uh, then also, in parallel, you write about your own interior reactions and how you were feeling, what you were thinking during the conversation. And then there's some other kind of reflection questions you answer. 
So we're supposed to do one of those a month, which is not terribly onerous. <laughs> uh, and then we go over it with our, our pastor, our supervisor. And the diocese is organizing a couple of lectures for us to hear over the next few months too from Catholic doctors or medical health professionals um, to kind of give us some more exposure and, and training, uh, you know, in those areas. So sounds like a great approach. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's unfortunate that during COVID tide, we can't really shadow a priest chaplain. Uh, at least I think here in Eugene, our local hospital is only allowing one visitor per patient. So it makes it hard to get that one-on-one -on -one training that's so valuable. Modeling, you know, model, um, following a priest chaplain who can model for you the, uh, his way of interacting with patients and doing the visits and things. So we're going to kind of miss out on that. Although hopefully the chaplain here can at least, um, even if it's not in live encounters with a patient, give me some tips and some, share some wisdom but it'll be good at least to get some exposure to this kind of ministry, to kind of make a regular practice of visiting the patients in the hospital. You know, I've been visiting the sick pretty consistently, but the hospital, I've only gone a couple of times to visit our parishioners here and there. So it'll be nice to make more of a routine of it and to have a little bit, a little bit of, um, you know, the verbatims, a little bit of reflection and some clinical uh, work. So. Anyway, I, I think that what the diocese is preparing for us here is good. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm grateful I don't have to do the CPE program. Uh, <laughs> there had been talk, you know, kind of before COVID-19 of me being sent possibly to New York or uh, uh, Connecticut, I think, was one or, you know, some different hospitals out there for the summer. And uh, I was game for it, but not particularly excited about it. <laughs> so I like... I'm happier to be able to stay here in Eugene uh, and work locally with our hospital here. So those are a couple things that can be downstream for me. Also, um, just working on some some planning and some discernment about uh, projects here in the parish. I mentioned last week I'm going to be teaching in the, in the seventh grade. So I uh, met with the religion teacher for the middle school, our parish school, and uh, we're working on coming up with some plans for lessons for the coming semester. My idea is to teach about the parables of Jesus from Mark's gospel. And uh, so I'm going to be over there just once or twice a month. So I'll go for uh, like half a day and teach the three seventh grade religion classes. They're broken up into three classes. So they'll all get the same lesson. And uh, so, yeah, I'm thinking so once or twice a month. From now through May, that'll be four through four to eight lessons, somewhere in there. I think there's ten parables of Jesus in Mark's gospel, so uh, <laughs> plenty of material. And uh, the idea would be just to uh, really to d just dive deeply into the parable, wrestle with it. We can have some discussion. We can, you know, do a deep dive on certain words, like even just breaking open a, a single word from the Gospels can bring so much light and so much truth um, and spark a really incredible discussion. So that's kind of the direction I want to go. Maybe also do some prayer like Lexio Divina, um, introduce them to some ways of praying with the scriptures. Um, it, you know, we could possibly, uh, well, and there's a variety of things we could do. I'm 
my, my brain's firing on all cylinders, but I think that's kind of the direction that I'm going to go with them. So the seventh grade, their focus is on the New Testament. They do a three-year religion curriculum where in the sixth grade, they read the Old Testament and with an eye towards how the New Testament is hidden in the Old, which I really appreciate. St. Augustine said, um, uh, Novum in vetera latet, vetus in nova patet, or something like that. So the, the, old, the new is hidden in the old, and the old reveals itself in, in the new, something along those lines anyway. And so the idea is when we read the Old Testament, yeah, we have to, we read it in the light of Christ. We don't read it as the Jews did, you know, before the time of Christ. We read it now from the perspective of Christ has come and he's fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And every word of the scriptures is about him. Like the whole meaning of the text is only revealed now that, that God has become man and revealed his face to us and revealed his heart to us. So that's their, that's their approach. I just love it. So they do that in the sixth grade. Then the seventh grade, they focus really on the Gospels and the structure of the New Testament and the life of Jesus. So this would plug in there really nicely. And then the eighth grade is kind of a church history, you know, history of Christendom and the Catholic Church and um, more of a focus on the church. It seems like a great curriculum, by the way. I really like it. But yeah, so with the seventh grade, New Testament kind of can just plug in there with uh, parables. The nice thing is we're reading St. Mark's Gospel this year in the liturgy. So the, none of the parables will come up until like June. Um, but uh, so it, it kind of won't sync up that way. Like they won't hear about it in class and then hear it on Sunday or something. But at least we'll engage with these parables. And then when they go to Mass over the summer or they attend on live stream, when they hear this gospel, hopefully they'll recall, oh yeah, we read that in class. And they'll, they'll recall, oh yeah, th there's this one word that we just really unpacked or there's something that will come to their memory from our discussion or something the Lord revealed to them in prayer and kind of make these parables um, come alive for them. Because this is how the Lord taught his disciples through stories, through images. A great way to teach kids too, from what I hear. So I'm getting excited about that, working on my lesson plans and stuff. For the RCIA on Sundays, I'm still kind of struggling. I don't quite have a vision of what I'm supposed to do. This last Sunday, I didn't talk about the liturgical year like I had thought. I ended up talking about vocation because um, that theme was so strong in the readings last Sunday um, in the ordinary form of the Mass. You know, we had the call of Samuel uh, and, then, uh, and then the call of the first disciples for the Gospel, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And Father Ron preached about vocation kind of in a, a broad sense. So for our breakout session for the catechumens, I just dove deep into vocation, the word vocation, what it means, how does the Lord call us. We looked at the calling of the disciples and kind of identified just the different elements of the call and how, how the Lord calls and how we, how we respond. And we looked at that text from Romans where St. Paul said, is a famous text, I think Romans 8, where St. Paul says, um, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he likewise called. Those whom he called, he also glorified, or he also justified. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. So kind of the, the, the broad, um, the eternal perspective on our calling, you know, which begins in God's uh, infinite 
divine wisdom and intellect from all eternity. He knows us before he created us. He has his vocation for us in mind before the world began. And it doesn't just begin and end with our earthly life. It begins in eternity and it ends in eternity because he wants to glorify us and ultimately bring us into union with himself forever. So I taught about that <laughs> and uh, we had some discussion about their individual you know, um, stories and how the Lord was calling them. We, I invited them to meditate on the call of the disciples and ask the Lord to reveal just how he is calling each one of them, what word he's speaking over them. You know, as he, as he said, for example, to Peter and Andrew, come follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men, which was uh, a word that was so piercing to their hearts, got right to the core of their identity and their desires that they left their nets and followed him at once. So what's the word the Lord's speaking to you that you're answering right now by coming into the church, coming to RCIA, uh, but what? just listen for what's that word he's saying to you that's convicting you. So anyway, it went really well. Um, but now here I am Saturday again. Saturday has come so fast and I have no idea what I'm going to teach about tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, there's kind of, I don't know, there's some freedom in that and there's also fear in that. <laughs> I like to really have a plan. I like to prepare and uh, have my ducks in a row and, you know, be well researched. And, you know, I want to have read the literature and the commentaries and everything and just just be you know well armed you know for 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 armed <laughs> is that a saying or is that just a part of your body the forearm <laughs> anyway i want i want to be ready you know when i go into the classroom but i i also feel and this is something i'm just discerning but i feel that the lord's inviting me into a more surrendered way uh even of teaching and of preaching and, you know, I, I preached this reflection a week or two ago about the healing of the leper. And it was so different in terms of my preparation and my experience of giving it than any other reflection I've given throughout this pastoral year or in my homiletics classes in the seminary. Um, so, but even so just looking at the other reflections I've given this year, you know, I really spent a lot of time preparing for each one. And I mean meticulously. I, I read commentaries and be reading Thomas Aquinas, the Catina Area, be reading Cornelius Alapide, this famous medieval scripture commentator. And you know, I'd be doing I'd be doing the Greek word studies on certain keywords and looking up the concordances. I mean, honestly, and and, I, and I'd come up I'd come up with a draft for the reflection that would always be like three times too long, and then rehearse it. Uh, several times aloud, identifying parts I could cut out, trying to compress, condense. And by the time, and then, and then I'd read it from a text, you know, a written, a, a final product, a written text at the pulpit. By, the, by that time, I pretty much had it memorized, but I'd still have the text because it was the product of all this study and preparation. Well, for this most recent reflection I gave, which I think was the best I've given all year, and I've gotten great feedback on it so far, um, as well. But this most recent one, it was such a different experience preparing for it because I really felt the Lord's invitation. Like the Lord had a word to speak. He, he had a word he wanted me to speak. And, you know, he promises the apostles uh, when they go before their persecutors, you know, uh, do not be afraid what you will say 
for the Spirit in you will give you the word at that time. He will give you the word at that time that he wants you to say. And uh, of course, we all know priests. I've known priests before who never prepare their homilies and they say the Spirit is just, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak. (laughs) And usually, in my experience, those are the worst homilies. (laughs) They're so disjointed and crazy and you can't get a hold on them. But uh, I took a risk this time and, you know, I'm not saying I didn't prepare. I read and meditated on the text and I think I I read a little bit of... um, well, I read a little bit of at least one commentary by this guy, Erasmo Leva Merikakis, which I ended up weaving into the reflection. And, I, and I, so I took some notes from that commentary and I jotted down some notes of the direction I think the Lord was leading me. But it wasn't this, it wasn't this um, sort of over-preparation, this overly meticulous, this um, yeah, overly detailed, almost anxious preparation it was uh, just characterized by great peace. <laughs> Imagine that. And great surrender. And uh, so I probably spent, you know, maybe an hour or two in total preparing for the reflection. And then I just got up. I, with, I didn't have a written text. Had my notes. Spoke freely from the heart. Um, I, I, of course, had prayed and surrendered it to the Lord beforehand. And that was really, I think, in communion with God as I was preaching it. And it was such a different experience. I mean, I wasn't afraid at, at all. I didn't have any, I didn't have any anxiety. I didn't have any um, even sense of pressure. Um, yeah, it was just an experience of great freedom. And so I think part of what the Lord's inviting me into now in the second half of this pastoral year is to teach and preach and minister and lead in a surrendered way. And he just wants me to live into this, this charism of, as I talked about last week from my retreat, you know, receptivity, surrender, mutual belonging, and just union with himself. Um, and so in a way, uh, the word that's coming to mind now is the pressure's off. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, I think that, that's kind of what characterizes this surrendered mode of operation that the Lord is inviting in me is to live in such a way that the pressure's off because God's the one who's in charge. God is the one who wants to use me as a living instrument to teach and prepare his people in these different situations um, and to lead them and guide them, you know, insofar as um, I've been asked and entrusted to do in different scenarios. But it's not up to me to chart the path like he gives freedom but he's the one who's acting behind the scenes there's a a divine pressure if you want where god you know the, the the hand of god is active the word of god is living and effective but there's not this internal pressure of perfectionism of thinking i've got to be the one to make everything go smoothly and communicate everything perfectly. So I, I don't know exactly why I shared all that, but um, all that just to say that I think the Lord's inviting me to, uh, to, to do ministry in a new way. So I'm trying to be receptive to that with regard to the RCIA. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that you can't plan 
and you don't want to have a vision. I think it's important to have a vision and a goal and a mission, but that has to come from the Lord. And for me, I think the great temptation is to overdo it. Um, and that kind of boxes me in and generates anxiety because it comes from perfectionism. Whereas what the Lord wants is, yeah, to have the goal, the vision, work toward it, but allow him ultimately to be the one who leads, the one who speaks, the one who inspires and give him room in me to work. So if you good people would pray for that, pray for the RCIA and for these various things I'm teaching, pray for the RCA, pray for the seventh grade, um, pray for my preaching. I don't know when I'll be preaching again next, but I'll have a few more opportunities. And pray for the hospital ministry, <laughs> all these things that the Lord is inviting me into. This morning, I got to train a couple young guys to be altar servers, uh, thoroughfers for the parish. That went well. So pray for them. And uh, pray for our discernment group, this Melchizedek project we are doing here at St. Mary's once a month uh, for the next few months, maybe even through the summer now that I'll be here longer, uh, meeting with a small group of guys who were interested in the priesthood uh, to have some fellowship. We're going to have a little meal and play a game, but also some small group discussion and prayer to really um, just encourage them and give them tools to discern well. So pray for that. And uh, <laughs> one more thing, pray for this vocations team I'm trying to get started at St. Mary's. I'm inviting people, and this next week uh, I'll be having some one-on-one -on -one phone calls with various parishioners just to kind of share with them what I hope to get started here and invite them to join the team and come on board. Um, I want to get a vocations team rolling, and before I leave, now in August, to really to really work with them and get a plan established. Here we go, planning again. But it's good to get it, not to get bogged down in the details, but get a plan and a vision for the next year for what the parish is going to do to keep supporting vocations, both the young men we've already got in this group and others who might emerge um, once I'm gone. And who knows if they'll get another seminarian or not. Hopefully they will. But what can they do and what will they, what will they have um, coming downstream to continue to support and form and encourage these vocations. I've got about 10 guys who are interested right now. Praise God. I just heard about another one. Like, they're out there. <laughs> and the Lord is calling. The Lord never stops calling people to himself. So um, it's just such a, it's such a gift to be able to work with them. And uh, it's, a, it's just something so, so important for this parish to be able to do is not to leave them hanging, but to, yeah, to be able to support these, these young vocations. So anyway, uh, all, a lot of things for you to pray for. <laughs> so just say for me this prayer that the Archbishop encourages us to say all the time, Jesus, I surrender to you. Take care of everything. Amen. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely play it. So this last week, I read Much Ado About Nothing. This is a play I've actually read before. <laughs> I, I was surprised to find out during the Shakespeare 2020 project just how few plays I had actually read. <laughs> because, I mean, I had a Shakespeare course in college. Uh, I had a, another 
And there was a separate course in which we read some of Shakespeare's plays, or at least excerpts. And then I had a whole course on Shakespeare where I felt like we had read a lot, but it was really just a handful, like four or five plays. And there's maybe one or two I read in high school. I remember Hamlet, of course, and Romeo and Juliet, maybe A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that was about the extent of it. Well, Much Ado About Nothing is one that I read in my college Shakespeare class. We actually watched a movie of it at the end of the course, and um, I was intending to go back and watch it last night, but I didn't quite get around to it. But I really recommend it. It is a great film, and uh, it, it stars Emma Thompson and Kenneth, I don't know, Branagh. Branagh, I don't know what his name is. Uh, <laughs> really, really excellent film. So the play, this is one of Shakespeare's last comedies, one of his, the very end of his comedy period. So he's on the verge of going into this period of his, his high tragedies, like the great, you know, Lear and Hamlet, the greatest tragedies of his career. And critics tend almost unanimously to agree the high point of his career, right? The tragedies. Um, so he, he's really a mature playwright by this point, and he's, he's um, you know, much sought after, and he's a, he's a master wordsmith. You can see that energy in Much Ado About Nothing, the, in the quick-wittedness of Benedict and Beatrice in their merry war of words. You know, Shakespeare so effortlessly, apparently, has his witticisms and quips flying back and forth in these play on words that are lightning fast and just uproariously funny. Um, you see it also in the character of Dogberry, <laughs> this constable of the watch, who's um, so just, oh, I don't know what exactly the word is, he's, a, he's, a, he's kind of a moron. <laughs> good-hearted guy and very sincere and uh, doing good work, you know. I mean, he's the one who ends up trapping the villains in the end, right? So classically Shakespeare, right? But um, he's constantly, you know, messing, he's substituting a similar sounding word for another one, which has almost the opposite meaning. And he, this goes on throughout all his speeches. But you see Shakespeare's genius in that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, in, in this play, Shakespeare's brilliance just as a writer, as a wordsmith, is so clear. Yet, you also see in Much Ado About Nothing, I think, how he's kind of over it. He's kind of fed up with just the sparkling prose, just the, um, you know, glittering dialogue, the, the fancy flashes of words that are all sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, we can make a lot out of the title of this play, I think, Much Ado About Nothing, because shortly he will write Hamlet, and Hamlet has his famous soliloquy where he says, words, 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 <laughs> you know, and I think he's talking to or about Polonius at the time, who's this pompous character who's constantly giving these long uh, flowery speeches that he sort of loses his way in the middle of and don't quite mean what he thinks he means. Whereas Hamlet says, you know, yeah, words, words, words. So I think Shakespeare... Shakespeare has, has kind of the frustration of a master who's reached the highest peak, if you want, of his art. And he can really effortlessly, you know, write these scenes, write this dialogue that wows the audience and 
dazzles the, dazzles the listener or the reader. Um, but for himself, he, he's a little bit contemptuous of it. Do you know what I mean? Because it, it comes so easily to him. This is, there's not really any evidence for this, but I'm just thinking because he goes into the tragedy period after this. And even in this play, um, I don't have this reference written down, but there, there's a character, perhaps it's, it's Beatrice even, I'm not sure about that, who, who says, um, I, think, I think it may be though, who says something like, wisdom is shown in one who keeps silence. <laughs> and uh, so I think we can, definitely, we can definitely see a trajectory here in Shakespeare, where soon he's going to move into these heroes who keep silence and who learn, these protagonists who, um, yeah, who learn the way of silence. I mean, Hamlet is one, Lear is another, who ultimately, who goes from being this, um, you know, kind of pushy king who is used to getting his own way to the broken old man howling on the heath and who, after this howl from the depths of his being, falls silent. Now, that's a bit dark. So let's circle back to the play, <laughs> Much Ado About Nothing. Much Ado About Nothing. What's the title refer to? Well, in the play, so there are... The two heroines are Hero, aptly named, and Beatrice. And they are sisters, or are they cousins? I, I admit I, I sort of lost track of the characters and how they're interrelated during this play. So let me pull up my Shakespeare app and just make sure I have got these relationships right. What to do about nothing? Dramatis personae. Okay, so Beatrice... Beatrice uh, is the niece of Leonato, the king, and Hero is his daughter. That's right. Okay. So uh, they're they're cousins. That would make them cousins, right? So the daughter of the king and the niece of the... So the daughter of the king and the daughter of his brother or his sibling. Yeah, that that would make them cousins. So Hero and Beatrice, (laughs) now that I've worked that out, are cousins of the two heroines of the play. Beatrice is this fast-talking and, uh, well, sort of scornful woman. <laughs> and she, she's a delightful character. She is totally outspoken, and she says whatever she's thinking. And she claims that she will never get married because there's no man who will live up to her standards. And she mocks relentlessly, especially this particular soldier called uh, Benedict. And so they have this merry war of words because Benedict is of a similar mind. And uh, so they're constantly trading insults and quips with each other. And he has this great speech at one point in the play where he's listing the ideal qualities of a wife, you know, if he was ever to marry, which no woman could ever possess, you know. (laughs) And uh, he, so both of them are basically... Uh, of the same mind in one regard that they'll never get married. But of course, over the course of the play, they fall in love. So, uh, Hero, meanwhile, the daughter of Leonato, uh, Hero becomes uh, affianced to Claudio. Claudio is a gentleman who is uh, a, a war hero. 
And so as the play opens, Claudio and his retinue are returning from war. Claudio uh, is immediately enamored with Hero when he meets her. And there's a complicated plot whereby, you know, event, the, the, the end result is they become engaged. But Claudio has another man in his retinue, Don John, who I believe is his brother. And Don John is very jealous of Claudio. So Don John engineers this whole plot whereby he accuses Hero of being unfaithful and uh, he leads Claudio to listen outside her window one night and he gets one of his henchmen to go and cry out Hero's name. And they've arranged so that the maidservant of Hero comes to the window and uh, calls back, you know, as it pretends to be Hero. So this is like evidence, right, that Hero is unfaithful. So Claudio becomes enraged. And this woman who he was totally enamored with, on the sort of the, the turn of a dime, he is enraged with and accuses her publicly at their wedding day of her unfaithfulness or infidelity. He uh, gives her back to her father with great drama and, you know, and he storms off. Well, Hero faints. She falls unconscious. She's completely taken aback by these accusations and whatnot. And then there's a friar there, very much in the vein of... Friar Lawrence from Romeo and Juliet, right? He's another well-meaning, bumbling religious <laughs> who comes up with a ridiculous plot. <laughs> it's the same plot, really. And so he tells Leonato, here's what we'll do. We need to pretend that Hero has died. She's died of a broken heart. We'll actually bury her in the family tomb. And then with her death, Claudio's hard heart will be sort of pierced, you know, and he'll realize what he's done and he'll repent. And then once he repents, then we can reveal that Hero is actually still alive and they can be married and happily ever after. <laughs> okay, so that's the plot. Well, in fact, um, as Hero is taken to the tomb and they're publicly mourning her and whatnot, well, the truth all comes out because of these two extremely incompetent and bumbling constables of the watch, Dogberry and Verges, <laughs> whose scenes are just comedic gold. They're so much fun. Oh my goodness. But so they, they overhear these two henchmen of Don John talking about the plot they had done and they arrest them and bring them before Leonato and the tr truth all comes out. And so finally, um, you know, Claudio, hear, Claudio hears of what's happened. He repents in dust and ashes, so to speak. And um, Leonato tells him, well, all, all will be forgiven. I will welcome you into my home and you can marry my other daughter, I think, or niece or something. Not Beatrice, but some other, some other kinswoman of his that no one has met yet. And so Claudio agrees to this. He says, oh, you're too kind. You're too generous. You still want to welcome me into your family. I don't deserve it. So he agrees. And they bring out Hero dressed in a mask. And uh, Leonato agrees to marry her. And then it's all revealed. Hero is still alive. Everything has turned out okay. And uh, they send soldiers to arrest Don John. And, you know, and the play ends happily. And Benedict proposes to Beatrice eventually in the end. 
So that's another whole side plot is um, over the course of the play, the friends of Benedict and Beatrice decide that those two are really a perfect match for each other, <laughs> but they're never going to admit it on their own. They're so stubborn and so committed to this idea that they'll never get married. And so they each, they, they just, their friends decide together to trick Benedict and Beatrice, each of them, into thinking the other one is madly in love with them. So in a place where Benedict can overhear, his soldier buddies are talking about how they've heard that Beatrice is, is completely head over heels for him and writing letters to him, but she won't send them because she knows he'll only mock her if he ever hears about her true affections. And then Beatrice, well, her maidservants uh, one day where she can overhear in the garden are talking about how they've heard Benedict is, is complete. He can't sleep at night because he's so enamored with her. Well, <laughs> then the, the, the trick completely works because the two of them, of course, really are so compatible, but they would never admit it. So once they hear that the other one privately harbors this affection for them, they both come around and there's still some drama between them uh, in the, the final acts. But finally, at the end of the play, Benedict proposes. And so there's this double marriage, Hero and Claudio, Benedict and Beatrice, and everything comes to a beautiful conclusion, as it should in a comedy. So what about that title, Much Ado About Nothing? Well, one thing to consider, so obviously it applies to the whole thing with Hero and her infidelity, because there was, that's really a tale of nothing. There was never anything uh, beneath the surface there. Don John completely engineered this scandal, and he entrapped Claudio in it. Now, not to say that Claudio is guiltless, because he believed it. <laughs> and so, he was so ready to believe it. At the drop of a hat, you know, he turns on Hero. So there's something more there I want to circle back to. But first of all, much ado about nothing. It applies to that whole scenario with Hero and Claudio. There was much ado. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this complicated plot. And they had to pretend she was dead. And this whole thing, right? <laughs> Over nothing. There was never anything but Words, 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 you know, Don John's words, the words of Hero's maidservant pretending to be her, and the words of Don John's henchman pretending to be whoever, and, you know, words alone. But these words, which were empty and signified nothing real, brought about real heartache and real brokenness. It, brought, it almost brought about, you know, an end to the engagement between Claudio and Hero. And... As far as everyone in the play was concerned, but Friar Francis and Leonardo, you know, who are in on it, it brought about Hero's death. So everyone thought that Hero had died from her broken heart from being left at the altar. And if she really had, that would be a direct result of the ado, <laughs> you know, brought about by these empty words of Don John and his, his comrades. Likewise, uh, we can say between Benedict and Beatrice and this whole plot to get them together. There was kind of much ado about nothing, in, in a sense, because um, 
you know, these were tricks. These were well-meaning tricks. Their friends played on them, right? Neither Benedict nor Beatrice was lying awake at night, as far as we know, <laughs> lamenting and, you know, uh, sighing inordinately over the other, other's affections and thinking about them night, night and day. Um, but their friends, through, the, through their words, kind of brought this state of affairs about. So there's really something here about the power of words to bring something out of nothing. And there's an old saying in philosophy, um, nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> uh, makes, it's true. It's true, right? Me- metaphysically, ontologically, it's true. Nothing comes from nothing. Except in the beginning of all creation, when God speaks all of creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. Since then, so everything, everything that has ever existed and will ever exist has its roots in God's sovereign will to say, let it be, <laughs> fiat. God created all things out of nothing. But as for us human beings and all other material causes, nothing comes from nothing. Something can only come from something. <laughs> so that's your metaphysics, you know, uh, tip for the day. <laughs> but uh, but there, there, at the same time, there is something there about words which is worth considering. And the power of words to evoke something out of, out of nothing. You know, this is the power of imagination. Um, this is the power, we, we see it on the one hand, the dark side of it with, with Don John. The power of a lie to bring about a state of affairs uh, which has no basis in reality. So, Don, but, but, and, yet, and yet, maybe, maybe here's the key. So there's something c- coming about through his words, but if we look deeper, we see it's not really something coming out of nothing because why was Claudio so quick to turn on Hero? Well, in his heart, he must have been afraid of her infidelity. You know, right? He he had he had a prior fear. He had a wound there <laughs> that Don John could play upon. He played him like a fiddle, you know. And uh, so there was there was something already in Claudio's heart where this was a confirmation of a fear he already had. This was a this was a, an, an you know a, an affirmation of something that he already um, was terrified would come about. And so Don John's words drew out something from Claudio that was already there. And this trick that he played upon him brought into the light, brought into the real world of human affairs, something that lurked only in Claudio's heart, in the depths of him. And likewise with Benedict and Beatrice, we see the words of their friends. Also a lie, yeah, let's not gloss over that. Um, each, you know, to each one that the other was madly in love with him or her. Um, these words were calculated by their friends to draw out into the light something that, was, that, that they believed, and they were right, was hidden in the hearts of their friends, Benedict and Beatrice, that love they bore to each other but could never express. And so words have this power. Words have power. I mean, don't let anyone tell you different. Words have power to bring about a change in us, which then brings about a change in the world. We don't have the sovereign power of God to speak something into being, to say, say, let there be light and there is light. But nevertheless, we have a true power of of speech, of language, to affect one another, to evoke something from someone else. 
And that in turn has real repercussions and sometimes huge repercussions in the world. So Don John's lies brought about, at least symbolically, a hero's death. Whereas the words of the friends of Benedict and Beatrice brought about their love and their eventual marriage. Something there, so there's something there for us to ponder, especially considering, I think, Shakespeare's trajectory here, uh, moving away from words, 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 and into silence. Much ado about nothing. Uh, so much, much speech. This is, a, this is a play with so much wordplay, so much wit, so much cunning language. And uh, that's all the ado but much ado about nothing. So behind all this speech, there's a kind of an emptiness. There's a kind of a, well, there's the motif of falsehood, right? Throughout the play. So there's, a, there's an equation of silence with wisdom and much speech with falsehood. I don't know, there's something there to ponder. Um, obviously, Don John's acts were evil and uh, ought to be condemned. What about the lies of Benedict and Beatrice's friends that brought them together? Uh, We might be tempted to wave those off and justify them because they brought about the love of Benedict and Beatrice and brought them to the point that they could marry in the last act of the play. But um, maybe we shouldn't be too quick to wave those off. Maybe uh, all the ado of the friends that sort of... uh, sort of tricked Benedict and Beatrice into uh, revealing their true feelings for one another. (laughs) Well, maybe all that ado was really about nothing. Maybe this is not a relationship that's going to last. Um, Who knows? I don't know exactly what the the moral meaning of much ado about nothing is for us. I'll leave that for you. If you have any ideas, feel free to submit them to me on my website, inyourembrace.com, or by a voice message happy to hear them. But certainly something for us to ponder uh, in the light of this play is the power of words, the power of speech to change one another, to evoke something from another, to bring about something new, to bring something into the light from someone else's heart. Shakespeare certainly knew that power, right? As a great poet and a great playwright, wordsmith, speechwriter, um, <laughs> he knows that power and he wields it like a pro. And yet we see as he goes into these tragic plays, he's, he's ascending to greater heights of dramatic genius, but he's leaving behind him also kind of this, this cunning wordplay of the, of the comedies and things. Um, he's scaling to greater heights and he's, yeah, he's, he's leaving behind the manipulative power of words to try to, to, to express something greater, more transcendent, um, something, something ultimate. These are stammering thoughts. I need to cut them off because I don't think I'm making too much sense anymore. But I hope I've given you something to think about with regard to this play, which I really love. This is one of my favorite comedies. Um, and you all can look forward to when I finally finish all the Shakespeare plays, I'm going to share with you my favorites in each category and my least favorites. <laughs> so I'm starting to mentally prepare for that now and sort of ranking the plays. I'd love to hear yours too. Uh, once once we finish out the project, which will be in May, because we're going to take a large break once Lent starts and dive deep into Lord of the Rings. One final thing I wanted to say about this play 
is that in my college Shakespeare class, so I wrote a paper um, on Much Ado About Nothing and King Lear, and I won an award for it <laughs> at my college seminary, uh, it, which was a, some, some type of academic honor they give to the college once a year for a, an outstanding you know, paper or something. But in, the, in this paper, I was looking at the character of Hero in Much Ado About Nothing and Cordelia in King Lear and comparing them to one another in a certain way. Because there's a very telling line that Friar Francis says when he comes up with this plot to pretend Hero is dead to bring about Claudio's repentance and everything. He says to her, come, lady, die to live. Doesn't that just ring with the themes of the passion and the resurrection? I mean, come, lady, die to live. Can there be a more Christian statement? Now, of course, uh, we look at the death of Christ, who dies to live, not only for himself, but for the sake of all of us, of course, right? So as, we, as we hear St. Paul say, um, this is why Christ became a man and died, so that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead, and so that those who die will, will, will live again. <laughs> I mean, he conquers death for our sake. So in King Lear, um, we see, we see, well, we see Lear kind of symbolically die and rise again. He dies to himself and he rises again. And what brings about his redemptive arc is sort of the loss of his daughter Cordelia, whom he, he exiles, he sends away because she won't give him what he wants, namely this effusive, um, you know, uh, um, sentimental proclamation of her love for him. The other daughters are only too quick to do it because they know the more they praise him, the more of an inheritance they'll get from him. But Cordelia won't do it. And she says to him, uh, this is a complete paraphrase, but um, basically, Father, uh, let my love be enough for you. Don't make me stammer out my love for you in words. Let my deeds and my silence speak for themselves. But the father warns her, Lear warns her, you have nothing to say, well nothing comes from nothing. That is to say, you'll get no inheritance from me if you say nothing. She stands firm, so he exiles her. Then he suffers the, the ungratefulness of his daughters, sharper than a serpent's tooth, right? Who kick him out of their homes and they are controlling and whatever. And he, he ends up in at the, at the low, low point of the tragedy, out on the heath in a storm, howling, almost driven mad by grief. And ultimately, so he, he gets to this darkest point of this complete humiliation. And that's where we see a change in the character of Lear, where he, all of a sudden we see a glimmer where he's no longer so completely self-absorbed and self-interested, looking out for himself. But they come upon a... Uh, a mad, apparently a madman living out in the heath. And uh, he identifies with him. He has a beautiful soliloquy about how the madman is no greater than the king. And he allows someone else to go into the shelter ahead of him while he stays out in the rain. So we see him sort of awakening in, in humility and charity. And ultimately it's Cordelia who redeems him. It's Cordelia who loves him and welcomes him into her home. And so her forgiveness brings about his redemption. But so it's symbolic in Lear, but 
there, the, the exile of Cordelia, which is symbolic kind of of her death, brings Lear to new life. And ultimately, they're reunited. Well, same thing with Hero. Her death, and it's also not a real death, but her symbolic death, come lady, die to live, brings about the redemption of Claudio. And so, in a way, her, um, her apparent death is what brings, it, it, it evokes in Claudio um, repentance and, and bitter sorrow over his sins. He recognizes the wrongness of his action in being so quick to accuse her and rebuke her and uh, really exile her from himself, you know, call off the marriage. He repents and he's, he's brought to new life. There's a new life of charity that's brought about in him. And then ultimately, for Hero, it's revealed she never died, but it's kind of a resurrection and they're reunited. So I, I thought it was fruitful to compare those two characters in that essay. And I was reminded of it as I was rereading Much Ado About Nothing this time. Um, just the, the beautiful themes of death and resurrection uh, in Shakespeare, not for one's own sake, but for the sake of another. Cordelia for her father Lear and Hero for her fiance Claudio. They willingly agree to suffer, uh, you know, innocently a terrible fate. And by so doing, they bring about the redemption of their beloved. Um, who, who was not deserving of it, you know? <laughs> After the way Lear treated Cordelia, he didn't, we could really say he didn't deserve her forgiveness, the reconciliation that she offered him. And after the way Claudio treated Hero, I mean, who could blame her if she refused to marry him after that, you know? <laughs> but uh, they, these, these innocent victims, they make themselves one who redeems their uh, beloved who had wronged them. And so I just wanted to call attention to that beautiful theme. It's present in Lear. It's, it's widely acknowledged in King Lear, right? This great tragedy. But it's also present in Much Ado About Nothing, which if you don't look too closely, you might think it's just a frivolous comedy. At the end, we all feel good and we move on with our lives. But no, there's a powerful, um, dramatic vein at the heart of Much Ado About Nothing that also runs through Lear, and it also runs through the heart of the Gospels. So that's my last word about Much Ado About Nothing. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. In the new calendar of the Roman Rite today, we celebrate St. Marianne Cope. And uh, I must confess, I didn't know much about her life before today. She, I knew she has a relationship to Hawaii because there's seminarians I know from Hawaii at my seminary, and they are always talking about these two saints, St. Damien of Molokai and St. Marianne Cope. So I knew she had lived in Hawaii, and I had an idea. She administered to the lepers there on Molokai. But until today, I'd never taken the time to read about her life. Well, guys, I want to share with you a little bit about her life because it is so inspiring and I think really timely for us in the midst of this pandemic to just think about this woman. So, so she was born in Germany. She's born in 1838. She uh, eventually, she came to America, I think, at, at like at one year, one year old or something. They all moved to New York. She, she moved with her parents. And they lived in upstate New York. 
and a Catholic family. She grew up there. Um, she ha- sensed a religious vocation at an early age, but she had to work to support her family in a factory. So she only, she only had an eighth grade education. And then she ended up working in the factory for, um, I don't know, like a decade or something to support the family. Finally, uh, when she reached the age of 18, or actually I think it was even older, I think she worked until like age 24. Finally though, she entered a religious order, which was her heart's desire. So she entered the Sisters of St. Francis in Syracuse, New York. And there she received the name Sister Marianne, she received the habit. They were primarily a teaching order, but they also were opening some hospitals. And so for the next 30 years or so, she worked in, with the sisters in New York. Um, she taught in schools uh, for a little while, but mostly she, she very quickly became an administrator of the order. And she kind of was raised up to the governance of the sisters, you know. So she helped them establish hospitals in New York. Um, I read that she was often criticized because at her hospitals they would accept so-called problematic or outcast patients that other hospitals wouldn't accept, like alcoholics and addicts and the homeless. She would accept them all, Mother Marianne, and everyone knew it. So she was criticized for that, but she became very well known and loved throughout New York because of her kindness and her wisdom, practicality, her down-to-earth, just maternal love for everyone who came through the door. So she uh, was involved in founding these hospitals and running them primarily. She had entered the order because she, well, she wanted to teach, and she ended up doing something else with her life for decades, which that in itself is a good lesson for all of us probably, (laughs) and those of us who were embarking on religious vocations most of all, that what we may think we're entering religious life to do may not be at all the mission the Lord has in store for us. So uh, this is what she ended up doing for quite a long time. She entered religious life in 1862 at the age of 24. I'm reading this now. And then she did this work until 1883. So yeah, just over 20 years. Now at this time, 1883, she was the mother superior of the province of the Sisters of St. Francis. So she was the head honcho for the local region. I don't know what that province is, but probably might have been the East Coast or it might have been like even the whole United States at that time. I, I don't know. Anyway, she was the mother superior. And she received a letter from the Bishop of Hawaii, the Bishop of Honolulu, asking for her help uh, in coming to manage their hospitals and schools in the Hawaiian Islands, mainly to work with leprosy patients, with lepers because this was such, becoming such a problem in Hawaii. And there were so many who were afflicted with this disease and they were being ostracized and outcast. Um, they were being, you know, they had been all, I believe, quarantined on the island of Molokai. And then they were trying to establish hospitals and places for them. Um, so they wouldn't just be kind of left to die there on this island. But there was a lot of resistance, of course, because People were so afraid of this terrible disease and no one wanted to have the lepers on their island or to have them there in their area. So uh, apparently the Bishop of Honolulu wrote to 50 religious communities. And this is what Pope Benedict said in an address in 2005 about St. Marianne Cope. Um, 
yeah, so the Bishop of Honolulu invited her. He says, leprosy was spreading rapidly and causing unspeakable suffering and misery among the afflicted. Yeah, 50 other congregations received the same plea for assistance, but only Mother Marianne, in the name of her sisters, responded positively. And this is what she said. She wrote back to the bishop and said, I am hungry for the work, and I wish with all my heart to be one of the chosen ones whose privilege it will be to sacrifice themselves for the salvation of the souls of the poor islanders. I am not afraid of any disease. Hence, it would be my greatest delight even to minister to the abandoned lepers. Amazing. So that same year, later that same year, she went with six other sisters from her congregation. They all went to Honolulu. And they, at first, were there managing a hospital which they had set up um, on Oahu for patients from all the islands who had this disease. So everyone was being sent to Oahu. So she was running the hospital. They actually established a house for uh, young girls, so the daughters of the lepers. The daughters were healthy, but the thing is, no one wanted to have the daughters of lepers in their schools or anywhere, you know, even though the daughters didn't have the disease. People were treating them also as outcasts. So the sisters founded a home for them on the grounds of the leprosy hospital where they could live. You know, they'd be, I guess, probably um, kept at a distance or whatever so the disease wouldn't spread. But they were there taken care of and they could see their parents. She also met uh, Father Damien, St. Damien of Molokai. So when Mother Marianne arrived to begin her ministry, he was kind of coming to the end of his. He was, I believe, a Belgian missionary who'd come to Hawaii and had kind of started the whole ministry to the lepers there. So they were able to work together. And Father Damien, of course, contracted leprosy and he died of it. And at the end of his life, this priest who had given everything he had, he gave, he gave his health, he gave his whole life to serve the lepers in Hawaii, to build up the church there. At the end of his life, because he had this disease, no one wanted to be in contact with him. So the local diocese wouldn't allow him. He couldn't come to the cathedral. He couldn't celebrate masses. He couldn't, no one would receive him. The government wouldn't speak to him. But Mother Marianne would speak to him and she received him in her hospital. She gave him hospitality. She'd visit with him and she accompanied him till the day he died. So what beautiful mercy she showed to this priest of God. And after he passed on, she continued the ministry. So a new government came to charge soon after, a few years after she'd been there, and they closed the Oahu hospital and sent everyone back to Molokai, back basically into exile. So the question was, who was going to care for them? <laughs> Mother Marianne, of course, volunteered. She said, we'll cheerfully accept the work. So she and her sisters went to Molokai and, uh, you know, cared for the lepers there. They established homes for girls and boys, their, for their children there. And she, well, ultimately she died in Hawaii, not of leprosy. She died of natural causes. So she never contracted the disease. She never returned to New York. So she went there in 1883, already after 20 some years in religious life as a superior, as a seasoned veteran, you know, of religious life. And she ended up living until 1918, uh, where she eventually was buried there in, in Hawaii. And she's one of these two patron saints of Hawaii, St. Damien and St. Mary Ann Cope. So what a stunning, what a beautiful example. 
I want to read a little bit more from uh, Pope Benedict's address about her. He says, True to the charism of the order, and in imitation of St. Francis, who had embraced lepers, Mother Marianne volunteered herself for the mission with a trusting yes. And for 35 years, until her death in 1918, our new saint dedicated her life to the love and service of lepers on the islands of Maui and Molokai. Undoubtedly, the, gener the generosity of Mother Marianne was, humanly speaking, exemplary. Good intentions and selflessness alone, however, do not adequately explain her vocation. Listen to this. It is only the perspective of faith which enables us to understand her witness as a Christian and as a religious to that sacrificial love which reaches its fullness in Jesus Christ. All that she achieved was inspired by her personal love of the Lord, which she in turn expressed through her love of those abandoned and rejected by society in a most wretched way. And I would just add to that, you know, yeah, it's, it can only be explained by her personal love of the Lord, by the Lord's love for her, this intimate exchange of love at the, at the deepest part of her being. That's what led her to become a religious to become a sister of St. Francis. That's what led her to lay down her life when she made her perpetual vows as a Franciscan nun. That's what led her to devote herself so willingly, so generously to 20 years of hospital administration. And I'm sure there were times, I, I suspect there were moments in her prayer when she wondered, Lord, what are you doing with me? <laughs> when she's trying to found hospitals and, and managing them and she's spending her time, you know, in budget meetings probably and trying to, you know, deal with personnel changes and, and whatever and like buying property for a new hospital. I mean, I only imagine the kind of just practical logistical challenges that she faced in all of these projects. And I'm sure there were moments in her prayer where she thought, Lord, what are you doing with me? I became a nun. I wanted to teach. I wanted to spend my life in prayer. And there's so much activity and it all just seems mundane and I don't understand. But the Lord in, all, in those 20 years was preparing her for another twist in her journey where she ends up being called for 35 years more to serve hands-on, to, to, to give herself with such care and such love, serving the poorest of the poor, serving Christ in his distressing disguise. As Mother Teresa of Calcutta says, amongst the lepers, the outcasts, and their children in Hawaii. I mean, I'm sure she never imagined her life would go the way it went. <laughs> but that's part of the adventure of our divine vocation. And I'm sure in retrospect, she could look back and see all the, all the little ways all along the road that God was preparing her for the ultimate vocation he had in store. When she thought at 24 years old she was going to become a nun and probably live within, you know, 30 miles of her home, and spend her life teaching kids in the local school and whatnot. Well, the Lord had plans for her that involved sending her to the, you know, farthest bounds of the country out on an island in the Pacific <laughs> to do a kind of work she had, I'm sure, never imagined. And he prepared her for it all along the way. And this, this also, this generosity of Mother Marianne, this, this surrendered attitude, this surrendered mode of operation that I was talking about earlier, can also only be explained because she knew Jesus and because she knew his love for her 
and her personal love for him. That, that's, the, that's the beating heart of love. That's the fire that enables one to follow him wherever he leads, even to the distant islands of Hawaii to found a, a hospital for lepers. So she is a truly amazing example. I was so inspired to read about her life today. And Pope Benedict ends his address by saying, Dear brothers and sisters, let us today be inspired by St. Mary Ann Cope to renew our commitment to walk the path of holiness. May the Virgin Mary obtain for us the gift of continual fidelity to the gospel. May she help us to follow the example of this saint and to strive tirelessly toward holiness. Yeah, and we think sometimes when we hear about the, the lives of great saints, how could they have done such work? You know, we look at Mother Teresa and we marvel at her and think, where does she have the energy? How could she possibly have given herself to this, to this difficult, challenging, uh, thankless task of caring for these people, of loving without counting the cost for so many years? And again, the answer is Christ, the love of Christ as St. Paul says, Caritas Christi urget nos. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ urges us on. So we never know where the Lord's going to call us or where he'll send us. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he knows. All that, all that matters for us as disciples is to be with him. And uh, we trust that whatever he leads us into, whatever path he calls us to follow, that he is going before us. He's, he's preparing us all along the way. And as long as we're united with him, he is going to bring about the good that he desires using us as his living instruments. Beautiful, beautiful saint today. So St. Marianne Cope and St. Damien of Molokai, pray for us. Amen. Well, dear friends, uh, I can't exactly say I'm cutting this short. I think it's already over an hour, but I'm going to cut it much shorter than last week. <laughs> I don't really have anything to share about Tolkien. I keep reading his letters. Nothing has particularly stood out to me in the last couple of weeks. Um, so I will skip that segment for today. And as for theology, well, as usual, we've talked about it all along the way, man. <laughs> you, know, you know what you're getting when you listen to this podcast. It's pretty much whatever we talk about, theology is going to shine through. So I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to go get a bite to eat. I'm meeting a priest friend to take a walk by the river uh, a little bit later in the day. And then we've got uh, confessions this evening and our Latin vigil mass. And then I need to spend a little time preparing for the RCIA breakout class tomorrow. I wish you a blessed Saturday. I wish you a great weekend. Um, may this Septuagesima Sunday, whether or not they commemorate that in your local church, may this be a moment to already start looking ahead toward Lent and Easter, asking the Lord for his desires for us and how he wants to prepare us for the coming season to be well disposed. And uh, let us just draw on the example of Saints Marianne and Damien and even of these great literary heroines, Hero and Cordelia, and just devote ourselves all the more ardently to Christ, draw near to him in our prayer. Lord, our prayer today and always is, uh, let your love for us be revealed Show us your love for us. Remind us of your care for us so that we may respond in kind. For the more we know that you love us, Lord, the more our hearts will be enkindled to love you in return and to follow where you lead. Friends, may Almighty God bless you, protect you from all evil, and bring you to everlasting life. Amen.